Welcome to the Ponder A New Podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Myalis, and this season we're looking at Paul's letter to the Romans. And this week I want to pick up, well, it's summer, right? It's summer, and summer means where a lot of us are on vacation, we're seeing some beautiful sights, and so thinking about what the wonder and beauty of creation can tell us about God, as well as it, it's also midsummer, and that means July 4th in the United States, and thinking about freedom and uh, what freedom in Christ and what freedom uh, looks like for us. So that should be enough for today. So happy pondering. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. I promise that I will not go this slowly through all of Paul's letter to the Romans, but man, these couple of verses are just so loaded and they deserve deep reflection. And I'm going to get to what Paul says about the wrath of God. I'm going to get there. I'll close with the wrath because that's probably the most exciting part. Keep you glued to the podcast. But what Paul writes here, the first thing he writes about is about how all humanity has an obligation to God because all humanity can discern who God is through creation. Right. Paul, Paul writes here that for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he have made. Therefore, we were without excuse. But this is actually a, a factually, I, I think, um, there, well, first of all, there's an emotional answer and then there's a sort of like a historical answer and then there's a hopefully blow your mind answer. Okay, so the emotional answer is, I think all of us have looked at a sunset um, and just been in awe of the colors or um, maybe the first time again we're at the beach and we just, you know, are in the water and we're just amazed by all, all that we were surrounded by. Uh, this last, I got to travel to Tanzania recently. I was on safari and just uh, I was up close to these elephants. And, uh, I was just blown away by how majestic of, of creatures they are. Uh, again, I, I think that all of us have had moments of looking at 
creation that do not simply cause us to praise creation, but, but we all have an instinctive sense that there's a creator then behind this and a sort of a drawn into to the beauty of it, right? Some people say the problem of evil philosophically, like how can there be a, a just God who allows evil and like, you know, stuff. There's also sort of the problem of good, like where do goodness and beauty come from? We get them in nature. Why are they there? And why do we as humans sort of contemplate them? So, so there is something about this beauty in creation that has always drawn people into a sense of, of the divine. Um, you know, I was even watching this, this Star Wars episode, and it was about this sort of, this primitive sort of culture, though, that was drawn in by this natural spectacle that they ascribed religious meaning to. Um, and, and the Star Wars wasn't mocking it. It was just sort of this phenomenon where there is beauty and in, in nature. I think as humans, we're just drawn to it and, and drawn to ascribe something supernatural, something greater than ourselves, if not even truly the creator. So that's the sort of the emotional response that we say, yeah, Paul, I get what you're saying. There's also historical, um, and this is kind of interesting in that oftentimes the religion of a people is reflective of their geography uh, because what we glean about the divine, uh, again, is often from our environment. And so, for instance, in Mesopotamia, where the flooding is erratic, uh, it turns out that the gods are kind of function in an erratic manner. Whereas in Egypt, where there is a very stable flooding pattern, it turns out the gods tended to be more sort of stable. Again, all uh, polytheistic cultures have their own wrinkles in them. Um, but, but again, you, can, you see this also in sort of modern days, or sort of in our era, where you know, sort of in the scientific revolution, you begin to have an understanding of the mechanical laws of the universe. And part of that is then this discovery that there are constants in life. So um, like the gravitational pull is, is a sort of a constant um, that they just start to discover more and more sort of laws about how these forces in nature sort of balance each other out. And, and again, sort of these, these constants they discover that you sort of have to learn in high school physics or chemistry or biology of these Greek letters and, you know, that this is 3.14 or this is, you know, uh, 2.78 or this is like 1.61 or whatever these constants are that they sort of repeat themselves. And so when you get this sort of sense then, this can lead one to a sort of a very rational sense of God, um, the, the sort of the enlightenment sort of God, the sort of the clockmaker deity, because this is reflected in what we see in this sort of natural ordered world. But then, starting really with the um, survival of the fittest idea of Darwin, um, and then really moving into the 20th century with the Heisenberg uncertainty principle in physics, um, and then even later sort of the chaos theory, there, there begins to be this way in which nature isn't quite so ordered. And, and that you start to see that like the way that species evolve isn't necessarily because one had a better idea, but actually one had a freakish mutation and it survived. That at a sort of um, at a atomic level, we don't really know where electrons are or how fast they're moving at the same time. There's a, a limit to what we we can know, and, and chaos theory says that there's sort of are these sort of stochiastic, that means random processes 
through which um, you know, one random event can seemingly trigger massive other events. In other words, that the world is more subtle and also seemingly more spontaneous. And, and what does that say then about our creator? Our creator can't simply be a clockmaker because life is too live. There's too much sort of happening here. And in fact, that the sort of, the, the sort of seemingly random patterns of electrons would almost be a very easy way for the God of the universe to, to interact with the universe and produce very large changes. So, but if we believe that life is a little bit more uh, random, open for sort of uh, small variances to sort of change creation, you know, what does this say about God? But also, again, and this is maybe where we start to really blow our, blow our minds, kind of, at least for me, this, I, I just can't comprehend this. So if you think about human life on Earth, what, what we know about it now um, is that it's really old, like super, super old, uh, like billions of years. Uh, and, and that alone uh, just makes an indication about what kind of God we have, that God is willing to sort of allow things to, like the perspective of time from God, right? If you have a universe that's 10,000 years old, God doesn't actually have to be that patient of a creature, uh, but, but if you have a universe that's like 5 billion years old, suddenly like, wow, God has patience. But then it even gets further than that because the, the chemicals necessary for life, for human life. So, so human life requires, say, iron to carry the, uh, the oxygen through our blood. But iron wasn't produced in the Big Bang. Iron is produced as far as we understand it, in supernovas. And supernovas take years to cook where a star eventually becomes too big and explodes and then spews forth its sort of remnants. In other words, there had to have been a star in our nearby area that billions of years ago exploded and in that fiery furnace exploded out these heavier elements. Because we also need those heavy elements to form sort of the metallic core of, the, of, uh, of our uh, planet that produces the magnetic field necessary to keep the solar uh, winds away that would have brushed away an entire atmosphere. So like life on our planet could not have existed until a solar, uh, until some star exploded in a supernova. And again, supernovas take three to four to five billion years to cook. So all this to say that uh, we know of creation now, we know that there wasn't any capacity for sentient life for probably five billion years at least, if not closer to six or seven. So what does that say about God? That God existed for billions of years before human life existed. And then again, going back to the randomness that I was talking about earlier, if we now understand that there were multiple humanoid species, what does it say about our creator that our creator sort of let these sort of species exist somehow and allowed one, Homo sapiens, to be the full bearer of God's image that he chose to become that species. So it, I, I don't think we have fully processed this because we are so often within Christian circles clinging to sort of like a very literal reading of Genesis. And, and I think that not only is, is bad theology, but I think it's preventing a sort of a ton of reflection uh, based on if this is the way the universe works, um, what does this say about who God is in terms of God's capacity to handle sort of randomness and in God's ability to sort of be long-suffering and to allow things to evolve just over millennia, not even millennia, like literally 
millions and billions of years. So anyway, so what can we know about God? Wow, lots to think about there in terms of creation. I want to now look at what Paul means by the wrath of God. And this section goes on and eventually does talk about uh, human sexual interactions. And, and I want to um, not go there um, because I think Paul is actually trying, because this passage then gets used against uh, sexual minorities in our country or in the world, rather than I think be understood for what Paul's point is really about how God is working really with all of humanity. Because what, what Paul he, here says is that the wrath of God has been revealed. And so when we think about the wrath of God, we might think about sort of God, you know, smiting sinners or like Zeus hurling down thunderbolts at people and zapping them and frying them. But there's no such indication that God is then actively chastising or hurting people who somehow have failed to, to honor him. What Paul actually argues is that, um, that in verse 24, therefore God gave them up uh, in the lust of their hearts to impurity. In other words, what Paul writes here is that God's wrath is revealed when God lets us do what we want to do. I, 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 let me say that again. God's wrath is revealed when God lets us do what we want to do. There was a, um, there's a, a musical, I think it's called Children of Eden, and it's the story of, of God with the sort of the first characters of Genesis and showing how God sort of as a character pulls back because God is so disappointed with the way the humans uh, treat each other and, and treat God. And it's a kind of an interesting, uh, haunting take. But what it's getting at there is that the response of, of God um, is, is less about sort of individual doling out of punishments and just pulling back and, and giving them the humans wide berth to do what we want to do. And I think this is really uh, worth chewing on quite a bit. So this week, um, in, I'm a United States of America citizen, and, and I'm very happy to be one. Uh, and so one of the things we do every year on July 4th, or around that time, we celebrate our independence from the monarchy of Great Britain in the 1700s. But moreover, it's um, often a time of celebrating sort of the American freedoms that we have, either enshrined in the Bill of Rights or more generally just what we talk about, sort of the freedom to do what we want to do. And, and this is a really interesting then concept um, because um, our freedom may not be as free as we really think it is. A young man recently was talking to me, um, and this young man, like a lot of young people, sort of grows up in the church and then kind of goes off late adolescence to kind of study and 
in the process really just kind of uh, leads a sort of a prodigal life of, you know, substances, abuse, women, all the stuff, right? Classic, like literally like prodigal son. And now it's kind of coming back and it's kind of like looking, kind of saying like, hey, I, this something didn't work. And, and what he realized was that the world's promise that sort of the good life was doing whatever felt good for you as long as it didn't, you know, truly hurt somebody else. Um, that, that that understanding of the good life is incoherent. It's a lie. It's, it's incomplete. And, and so this person now is trying to figure out, well, okay, well, you know, what is the good life? And that somehow the good life doesn't simply look like autonomy. And when we talk, and, and this is, I think, a really hard thing for our culture today because our culture is so wired to praise individual autonomy, um, just sort of in our DNA um, as Americans, as Westerners, as, as moderns, that we just sort of chafe at the idea of somebody telling us what to do, that uh, we often come up with an idea that sort of the, the good life then, again, is doing whatever we want. And it's interesting here that Paul actually says, doing whatever you want to do, that's actually God's form of punishment. <laughs> that's how God displays God's sort of anger, is to say, fine, if you want to do that, you go ahead and do that. Uh, sadly knowing that we will likely bring harm upon ourselves and even others. And so what then um, becomes the alternative? And, and one possible alternative is a sort of a legal scheme of like do's and don'ts that we have to follow. But it's interesting because Romans certainly wasn't written uh, in the spirit of wanting to give us a whole bunch of rules that we have to follow. In fact, Paul comes along and says that, in, in fact, the, the laws that, uh, that we have, he writes this in Romans 7, end up just tripping us up. Um, so, so what are we to do then um, if, if the freedom to do whatever we want is really autonomy, and that's not the good life, that's not the godly life, yet somehow uh, just abiding by a simple list of rules of right and wrong, that that's also not like what the good life is. Well, what, what then is the alternative? Well, that's what Paul is going to have to sort of pick up in his later parts of Romans. And that's what we're going to continue to study and reflect on. What does the life look like beyond sort of, again, autonomy or, um, I wish I could think of a better, you know, kind of one word, pithy word, but, or sort of, sort of the religious straitjacket. What is the, the alternative? And I think that's really important for us to consider because I'm thinking again about this lens of this young uh, person who came to me. And I think for somebody at that age right now, as this sort of this established church, sort of Mr. Rogers, I don't mean that negatively, Christianity kind of fades, and you're sort of that sort of, you know, love your neighbor, kind of do good, try to live your life for others, um, 
you know, even be thrifty and, and work hard, sort of sort of Americana sort of slipped in there. As that sort of fades, what you're left with for a lot of young people are these two alternatives of a sort of a Christianity that seems very legal bound or again, a sort of a secular humanism that sort of just says, do whatever you want. And, and both uh, seem to be um, not able to deliver the goods that they promise. So what is then the way forward? So we'll have to keep picking up with this, but I wanted to spend some time pondering. Uh, if, we, um, if we take science seriously, and science is always changing, but what, are, what does current science say about the universe and what might that say about God? And uh, especially as a nation, as we pause in this upcoming week or so to think about freedom, what is the real nature of, of freedom in Christ?